Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat, a show where I interview business executives, talent development professionals, and thought leaders to find out what has been successful and challenging in the world of talent development. My objective is to share ideas, valuable lessons, tools, advice, and trends. My hope is that all of this will ultimately help you, the listener, expand your knowledge, grow your career, and accelerate your success as a talent development professional. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited that you're joining me today. I've got a great interview for you with a man named Ben Barron. Before we get to that, I want to make sure I mention our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. If you haven't been there yet, I'd love for you to go check it out. Not only do we have all of our past episodes on there, we also have a lot of free resources like my top trends report, top books report from the podcast, as well as some great free learning journeys you can go through on becoming a multiplier, boosting your EQ, boosting your influence, and becoming more of an influencer in your organization, as well as other tools and tips and treats for you if you're in L&D talent development that can be really helpful for you, including a couple of webinars on developing high potential leaders uh, that you might find useful as well. You can find all of that at our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com, as well as one more thing there. We've got some insights and we've got some descriptions of some of the solutions we offer Yeah, my specialty is connecting companies with exceptional learning solutions that help their companies turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And I love working with L&D leaders to help them do those things, make them look like rock stars. So if you're interested in something like that, head on over to our website or reach out to me directly. And now let me get to our interview today, which again, as I mentioned, is with a man named Ben Barron. And Ben is probably one of the few people in the world who is equally comfortable in a university classroom, a military uniform, or in a corporate boardroom advising top management teams. He's an award-winning assistant professor of management at Cleveland State University, a co-founder and principal of the consulting firm Indigo Anchor LLC, and a commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve. Ben is also the co-host of the newly launched Indigo Anchor podcast as well with his co-host from his company. And he has a wealth of experience both from uh, the military, academia, and the corporate world. And we talk about all those things. We talk especially about culture and how things are different working with, say, the Afghanis when he was stationed in Afghanistan, as well as how the Navy does talent development compared with what he's observed in the corporate world and what either side can learn from the other. 
We talk about uh, high-performing teams. We talk about networking. We talk about career advice, especially for those earlier in their careers. We talk about the trends we're following. We give some book recommendations and some career advice for those of you in L&D at the end. So if any of those things are interesting, stay tuned. I've got a great interview for you. And uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Ben Barron. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world, and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. Hey, Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Andy. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. We were connected by uh, Katie Ball, who was a, a past guest and uh, a fellow naval reservist, I guess. Mm-hmm. Both of you were formerly in the service and now uh, Navy Reserve, right? You're a commander in the Navy, is that right? Yeah, somehow that happened over uh, over the past couple of decades. So <laughs> <laughs> a lot can happen over over twenty plus years. Uh, yeah, apparently. But along the way, you've also you're a professor. You teach MBA students. You run a company. Can you fill in just a little bit of the, of your background and the details. I'd love to maybe just start with that. How you got to where you are today? Sure. So I've had a very circuitous route towards where I am today. Not necessarily the most advised one, I, I suppose. I was not a business major or anything like that. As an undergrad, I was a political science and communications major. I was uh, doing the, the Navy ROTC thing. So the Navy was paying for me to go to school, which was awesome. And then I was a commissioned officer in the, the Navy upon graduation and uh, spent a number of years on a ship out in San Diego, around the world, getting some, some really great leadership experience right off the bat, which was really great. And then you know, left active duty, but stayed in the Navy as a reservist ever since. But it was really those early experiences in the Navy that gave me this, this sense that, you know, organizations are really, really interesting and they're really complex, you know, because I would see things that, you know, were surprising to me, you know, in terms of individual behavior and people maybe not doing what they're supposed to be doing in the Navy and so forth. And yet at the end of the day, you know, the United States Navy was at that time and still is today the greatest Navy that has ever sailed planet Earth. And seeing how all that kind of comes together from a culture standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, just really got me interested in how organizations work. And so then I had the opportunity after I'd left active duty and was still in the reserves and everything, but I uh, had the opportunity to go to graduate school into this field that I'd never heard of before. So it's the industrial and organizational psychology was the um, master's program that I, I took one class in there before I actually got into the program. And then I, I actually did that plus my PhD in organizational science. Um, I quit my job. I did that full time for four very intense years and just learning everything I could about organizations. And this is, you know, from a macro level strategy type stuff all the way down to the, the very micro level, you know, individual personality leadership type stuff. And 
I just found it so fulfilling because it started to fill in some of those gaps for how organizations actually work and so forth. Um, along the way, doing a lot of research, getting the, the chance to do some consulting along the side with some of my professors and so forth, getting to kind of see how this stuff operates in real life, which was just fantastic. And then I was kind of torn about whether or not I would go into academia or go into industry because uh, you know people with that type of graduate education, they about half and half kind of go either into industry or right. into academia. And so I was kind of on the fence for a long time. And I was like, well, I might as well like apply for some of these academic jobs. So I ended up getting one. And I was like, well, yeah, I can do this. And I also do a lot of the other more non-professor stuff on the side. And it's, so it's really start, worked out very well. I've been able to be very entrepreneurial in what I do. And kind of the, uh, the nice thing about being a professor is if you teach your classes, you do a good job with that, you do your research, you get stuff published, you work and play nice with others. People aren't keeping track of every single thing you're doing all day long as long as you're producing stuff. Right. It's not one of these things where you just have to be there until five every day or something, and which really appealed to me because then it also allowed me to do lots of other interesting things that all complements, you know, my teaching and my research and stuff. So, you know, the ability to go out and work with executives and help companies deal with their problems and so forth, that I think has really made my teaching better. It's um, certainly taught me a lot. It's also you know, help me in my research and so forth. So long story short, you know, all along the way, doing all these different things, kind of in my civilian life, but the, I still kept that thread of the military, you know, so I was still doing things with the, the Navy Reserve. And then back in 2012, got the phone call that, oh, by the way, you are the, the winner of a, an all expense paid round trip ticket to Afghanistan. And so go to Afghanistan for a, about a year. Basically, all of 2013, I was there as an advisor to the Afghan National Police. And that was interesting. You know, it's for those people who haven't, you know, been to a place like Afghanistan or maybe Iraq or some of these places with the military, it's, it's very interesting because, I mean, you, you have actually a fairly, a lot of friends develop from that because there's a lot of people who are uprooted and put in one place together. So, you know, I had a, a rather robust social life while I was actually in Afghanistan, which was fascinating. But every other day, leaving my base and going off and meeting with Afghan colonels and trying to get them to, to do things, it was kind of like executive coaching, but you were wearing body armor and carrying weapons and used a, a translator. So right. it was um, yeah, kind of like that. Similar. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, really interesting stuff I got to do over there. Aside from being away from family, probably one of the more formative things that I have gotten to do in my adult life. I mean, I had deployed before uh, with the Navy when I was on active duty, but that was more of the stereotypical go out on a ship for you know six months or whatever. We went yeah. over to the Persian Gulf and did stuff there and came back, and which is much different than you know, let's go to a landlocked country where, oh, by the way, there's bombs going off once in a while and stuff Everywhere. like that. You're doing yeah. this very unfamiliar type of activity. So fascinating stuff. Uh, really made some lifelong friends there, and it was a cool thing to be part of for that time. And you know, and then. Coming back from that, still still doing some military things along the way. So, you know, your former guest, uh, Commander Katie Ball, she's a good friend of mine. And we both, uh, for the past couple of years, you know, she's been in a, a job that's very similar to what I do. So we've gotten to work together on a lot of things, which has been fantastic. And, you know, just getting to, to be part of that big organization is really cool. And, you know, the Navy is doing a lot of, a lot of interesting things with regards to how it 
manages talent itself, right? So I'm an HR officer in the Navy now. So that means that I get, in many ways, a front row seat to seeing how the Navy is doing some of its stuff around talent development and how it's doing things related to even, you know, recruiting and so forth. I mean, you imagine an organization that's every year is bringing in about 36,000 people. I mean, that's a pretty big task. Yeah. And probably retiring an equal, equal amount, right? Or leaving. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is nonstop churn and turnover in the military. I mean, you go to a job, you imagine if in your civilian job, you know, just in any organization, like a person comes there and they're there for maybe 18 months to maybe three years and then they leave. And that happens for everybody and not on the same schedule. So you're always Mm -hmm. having that churn, which is a really interesting thing in the military that we have to deal with. So yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing in a nutshell, you know, along the way, about a year and a half ago, went out and started my own firm, Indigo Anchor with, uh, with actually a great guy who I met in Afghanistan. He's a, a National Guard Army officer. So uh, we met there and ended up doing some work together and started our own firm. And uh, it's been great. And now you guys have a podcast too, right? We do have a podcast. Yeah, the Indigo podcast. And you know, it's at uh, indigotogether.com. So you know, in that, we're really trying to explore what it takes to flourish at, at work and beyond. Because I just think that so much of our overall life satisfaction and so much of our overall experience of this world is intertwined with how we experience the workplace. And that's not just, you know, actually not just my opinion. That is, we have good research that shows that a big chunk of your life satisfaction is influenced by your job satisfaction. Amen. So true. So I want to go back to a couple things you mentioned how the Navy manages talent development, and I definitely want to ask a little bit more about that. But also, you know, a topic that comes up all the time in the talent development world and on this podcast is is culture and managing culture and how do you change or align on culture. And especially if you've got companies that are merging, you've got different cultures coming together, how do you get them to work together? There's a lot written on that from a company perspective. You had an experience with this IO psychology background, with this mm-hmm. experience in HR to go to Afghanistan where you've got the U.S. Navy, U.S. military trying to work with the Afghani military and police force, two very different cultures coming together for, in theory, a similar goal, right? Or for one goal. So what was that like? What did you learn from that cultural experience? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I guess there are a couple of things. So first of all, there's the huge national culture difference between how we operate kind of as just as a Western culture versus you know, a culture like Afghanistan, right? Where it's, it's much more um, built upon very close relationships. You know, for example, if you go into a meeting in Afghanistan with other Afghans, and if you just jump in and just start kind of getting down to business about stuff, kind of like we would here in the United States or probably a lot of parts of Western Europe too. Yeah. <laughs> you do that over in Afghanistan and it's, it would be very off-putting. You know, they'd probably tolerate it for a little bit or something, but Instead, you know, what's, what you do in, in those types of situations is you go in, you ask about your family, and you talk about various kind of small talk for a little bit. You have some tea, maybe a little snack, and then eventually, you know, maybe 30, 45 minutes into it, then you start talking about what you were there to talk about. And that's just kind of the way it is. So norms like that are really important. You know, so we went through a variety of kind of cultural training to try to get us ready for that type of stuff. Know, to try to be at least aware of those types of norms and stuff like that. But what was interesting too for me was not only the organizational cultural differences you know, between, for example, the U.S. military and 
the uh, Afghan government, so to speak. But it was not just the U.S. military there, obviously. So I was part of a, a NATO group, so you know the uh, which is a whole bunch of other countries. I was one of only a couple Americans in our group that was doing a bunch of work with the police. Um, a lot of the others were Canadians. Had um, my office mate for the, the whole time I was there was a Dutch guy. Um, they they interchanged a couple times because they were only there for about six months. So I had three different Dutch guys I worked with. We had some Turkish officers there. We had one random German guy. I mean, so we had all of these different cultures coming together to try to work on these different issues. And I did notice that there is an American way of working. And since we're, the, we're kind of the big dog there, right? Our way oftentimes would dictate how things would get done. But I'll just put it this way. The Americans that I worked with, oftentimes they work really hard. And, and some of our, our NATO allies and stuff, they're amazing people. And uh, they would definitely want their coffee breaks. And so we would go take coffee breaks uh, you know, at 10 a.m. if we were not doing something. And there's some value to that too, though, because they would, um, you know, during the coffee break, it wasn't just talking coffee. We'd also get work done and stuff like that. Uh, so it was amazing to also experience some of those other cultures while I was over there. And I think the key to being successful, either in a situation like that, which is kind of an extreme example, or a situation in which maybe you're going through a merger or an acquisition, um, or just trying to get used to a new organizational culture yourself is to be observant first and to you know get a sense for what the other culture is like so for example you know looking at what we would call those artifacts of organizational culture those things that you can notice you know how do people communicate with each other how do in particular you know people of maybe different levels or different status levels how do they communicate with each other is there a tendency to um, really defer to authority or not? What are some of the, uh, the signs and symbols around the organization that kind of says what's important and what's not? All those types of things can, I think, give you a good sense for what the other culture is like by just kind of opening your eyes, being very aware of what's going on and not assuming that the way that you like to operate is the way that everyone else operates, right? I mean, that's a very natural tendency. And yet you can get yourself into trouble if you just kind of try to do that without some awareness of what other groups really prefer. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the biggest, most important thing is being curious, being open, observing what the way other cultures do things, and then asking, okay, how can we work well together to achieve a common goal versus just trying to force your culture on somebody else? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, of course, that's, that's not to say it's easy either. I remember mm. one instance in particular with this Afghan colonel, and I, I had been working with this guy for, I mean, seven or eight months at this point. So we, we kind of knew each other, I, I think. And um, I hope we had developed some rapport with each other. And I was really trying to get him to actually tell me what he thought was the right idea and what with this particular training program. So I said, you know, I, I really want your opinion here through my interpreter, right? And you know, he would come back with, we will do whatever NATO wants us to do, you know? And I just kept on trying to emphasize that. So sometimes, and it was very difficult. I never really got kind of a straight answer. And it's because of kind of the power dynamics of how things were in that situation, right? You know, this is a country that had been under some sort of outside influence for a long time, going way back to when the Soviets were there and then the Taliban years, and then we were there for a long time. So it was hard to really get kind of a straight answer out of that. So, you know, not to say that any of this cross-cultural communication stuff is easy, but I think you just have to keep trying and check your own cultural baggage at the door and try to really empathize with other people. 
Yeah, I like that. The empathy is, is so important. Absolutely. Staying in the, the military context for, for a little bit longer, you mentioned, you know, working in HR in the Navy and, and understanding how the Navy manages talent development. You've also been working with uh, different, you know, civilian corporations, public companies, other types of smaller companies, and seeing how they do HR and talent development. What would you say are the big differences? What, what's something that the Navy is doing really well that maybe other organizations could learn from? That's a good question. I think the one, a luxury that you have in a civilian organization that you don't have in the military is that you have a little bit, it's a little easier to pluck people out of certain places and, you know, put them in a new leadership role and stuff like that. Whereas in the military, people are in certain ranks and so forth. And you can't just take someone who's, you know, really junior, even if they're super awesome and stick them into a more senior level position uh, if it's too big of a jump. And so that's one kind of tricky thing that we, we can't really do in the military. But what the military, I think, does really well, at least from a Navy perspective, is you know, we, we have a, a really good, long cultural tradition of what leadership is and what it looks like. And so you know, regardless of your rank, there's ongoing training, ongoing communication around values and what it means to be a good leader and all that kind of stuff that's really kind of hammered into you from day one, especially, uh, you know, if you're an officer, you know, to the point that, you know, I think it, it does produce at least some level of shared expectation around what leadership looks like and what things like, you know, responsibility and accountability and authority, what those mean and how you can use those in good or maybe not so good ways in the organization. So I think we do a good job with that in the military. And we have the benefit of, like, for example, in the Navy, you know, more than 200 years of tradition and kind of weird cultural customs and things like that, that help us reinforce all of that. But I'd say that's one thing that we do really well is trying to reinforce some of the cultural things around what's important and what's not. You know, I think on the civilian side, I think many civilian organizations are probably doing a better job with some of their more agile practices around managing talent and doing things in a faster way, in a more responsive way, even a more proactive way around succession planning and so forth. We don't, we don't really have the ability to do a lot of that in certain parts of the military. Now, there, is, there are some attempts that, to be done there. It's also kind of succession planning is kind of naturally done through rank and everything else, right? You know who's, who's coming behind. It can be, right? Yeah. And at the same time, there is still some, and this is probably true across the board, you know, even if you have someone who's really ready from a kind of knowledge and skill standpoint, there's still, you know, usually a learning curve when you get into any new role. And sometimes that can be kind of individual variation of whether or not, hey, did this leader give me a good turnover so that I can kind of take over their job or not? So you still have some of that, that individual variation across the organization. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, some of it is is forced. It's not it's not always as agile. You can't move people around and challenge right. them with a the new thing and jump around. But then there's a lot of benefits also to having all that structure and hierarchy and and the cultural norms that people live by, the traditions, so that there's there's no confusion, right? Right. On how things are done. Yeah, that's interesting. So along those lines, I want to shift a little bit. You and I were talking before we started recording about some of the things you've been working on and, and topics you're interested in. One of them was you mentioned is flourishing in the face of adversity. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, on the face of it, I think that sounds like something that would come from a naval or military lexicon, right? This adversity, but mm-hmm. we all face adversity in our careers in all kinds of different ways. So tell me more about what you mean by that. And how does that 
relate to people working in corporate talent development? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's, it's funny when you're an academic, you're kind of expected to be able to explain your research. You know, I, right. I study this and so forth. And uh, it's, it's always been a little bit of a challenge for me because I, I like to research a bunch of different things. But then I realized that the big theme across a lot of my research is that I am very interested in kind of weird situations that people have to work in and how they deal with it. So for example, I've done research on you know, animal shelter workers who have to also euthanize animals, right? I've done research on Danish slaughterhouse workers. I've done research on firefighters who have to deal with you know, a lot of um, adversity in their work as well. And you know, so the common thread there is like, how do we either at an individual, a team or an organization level, better sense and respond to change? How do we develop resilience at the individual level? So that's been something I've been very interested in really now for, for more than a decade. And you know, I guess some of the, some of the things that are, I, I find particularly interesting are you know, some of these things around, for example, psychological resilience. You know, how do we deal with adversity at a, a very personal level? And there are a number of things that we can do, a number of things that organizations obviously can do to help people cope. But a lot of it comes down to you know, this idea that, that we call hardiness. And whether or not you as a person have enough of a strong sense of purpose and meaning in your life to really help you get through tough situations. And I think that's just a, a really powerful thing for anyone who's dealing with a lot of change and adversity in their life is that you know, if you can find a way to truly identify what matters to you and what gives you purpose and meaning in your life, then that is going to be what helps gets you through stuff. You know, because you can put up with a lot of stuff if, if you feel like, hey, you know, this is tough and it's difficult, but this is what I care about. These are my values. Yeah, if you have a true reason, a purpose behind it, yeah. this we'll talk about how you know that why, that's what drives you. And that's why they always say, I mean, I've taught like programs on how to achieve goals and you set big goals, you need to connect to a why behind that. Otherwise, adversity is going to come yep. and you're going to say, ah, I'm not going to the gym today. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, at the, at the team level, I think a lot of this, what the research tells us is that this is about how people communicate with each other. Because when you're faced with a lot of ambiguity and a lot of uncertainty, it really takes good communication and good social interactions with people in order to make sense of what's going on. You've got to be able to communicate well with each other. So for example, we know some of this from some of the research on what we call high reliability organizations. And these are organizations that we would expect to have way more accidents, way more failures than they actually do. The classic example is the naval aircraft carrier, right? So an aircraft carrier has you know, planes going off all the time. You've got a lot going on. You would think that a lot more people would be getting hurt. And one reason that they don't is that, for example, everyone on that flight deck has the power to stop the operation, right? The junior level person can say, there's something unsafe going on. We need to stop, right? And so these different aspects of kind of how people communicate and how we deal with authority within teams and organizations can help us with, with dealing with these ambiguous and uncertain types of environments. So for, from a talent management perspective or a talent development perspective, one thing that I think is a huge challenge and, and an opportunity for people in the de talent development world is to help leaders be able to make better decisions in those types of turbulent environments, right? I think that a lot of people are not well equipped to do that. And uh, that's a huge opportunity. Yeah, and to really empower your 
your employees, your people to, to step up and speak up when things are not going well. And like you said, you know, stop the operation if things are unsafe on the aircraft carrier. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the Numi Auto Plant in the, the Bay Area that it was a joint venture. GE was operating it since the 60s and they did a joint venture with Toyota in the 80s. And one of the big things that came out of it, GE was really struggling with all these cars coming off the line with defects. And you know they were just getting clobbered by the Japanese automakers coming in at the time. And what they learned from all their employees working with the, the Toyota employees is that with Toyota, their employees all had the power to stop the line yep. if something was wrong and then fix it. Whereas with GE, you would wait till the car comes to the end and then someone would be in charge of fixing the defects. And it was just this very inefficient process that they learned that if you empower all the employees to just pull a cord, they could fix it right then and then move on and things would be better. But when you've got this like hierarchical culture where you know no one feels like they can speak up, then problems don't get solved. Absolutely. That's a really great example. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. So you're also, you know, you mentioned as a professor, you're teaching MBA students, right? Mm-hmm. And I've gone through business school and and was at a very... For some people, it's just kind of they're adding to their resume and they're continuing on with their same career. But for many people like where I was, it's a pivotal point and you're trying to figure out, okay, where do I go with this? How do I figure out what to do with my career? And uh, you mentioned to me that 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 kind of question is coming up often. What do you tell? What do you advise people these days? Because I'm I'm very interested in this idea of career development and, and how do you figure out where to go once you have that advanced degree? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a it's a tough question because um you know one thing I struggle with is hey, you know I'm I'm probably working with these folks and trying to help them get ready for jobs and careers that don't even exist yet. Yeah. You know, in terms of <laughs> just the, the nature of work and how it's changing. But I think there's kind of a a balance that you have to strike between those things that you're you know some people just say follow your passions and mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, yeah, kind of. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about a lot of stuff that that's not going to like put food on the table. I mean, I got four kids; they're going to be hungry yep. if uh, if all I do is um, think it's my passion necessarily. First of all, I, I tell this to you know really anybody at at any career level is like really try to develop your expertise in something that you you at least find meaning in, right? That you can see some purpose in. I think that's the the first step, and then really be open minded about what could be out there. And, you know, someone, there's this guy named Andy who has this podcast who says that, you know, it's really important to keep networking and to uh, be a lifelong learner. I've heard that. Uh, yeah. I, wow. That's cool. So um, <laughs> that I think that is really good advice. And that is something that I tell my uh, students, regardless of their level, you know, where they're on their career, because you just don't know what you don't know in certain areas. You maybe have a really bright career ahead of you in healthcare even if you haven't done that before. So I really encourage people to get involved in things. One way that I also encourage people to kind of figure out more about what they're good at, as well as to really be productive in networking, is through volunteerism. So I have this kind of jaded look at networking sometimes, where maybe because I'm slightly introverted and I don't really you know want to talk to people sometimes if I don't have a specific reason to do so. <laughs> you know, But I, I like to tell people that Networking isn't about just going into a room and like handing your business card to everybody. Like that's that's horrible. What you need to do instead, and what actually can be even more productive, is hey, find a trade organization. You know, if you're an HR person, go join your local chapter of SHRM or ATD or whatever. You know, if you're in some other business function, find the equivalent of that and go join it. And then guess what? Those organizations are always looking for somebody to 
be on the board or be on a committee or help with something. And if you can go do one of those jobs and prove a little bit of value, then people are going to notice that. And they're, they're going to be like, oh, look, like Ben came and joined this, this committee and is doing some decent work. And that, that becomes really powerful for you as a networking tool because then you get to know people and they've actually seen you operate a little bit. So I think people should get involved with uh, their professional organizations as a networking piece. And also, and when I say get involved, you know, actually volunteer in the organization and dive in there and actually do some stuff. Another way is through you know, nonprofits, either through volunteering on nonprofits or you know, if, if you have the opportunity to join a, a nonprofit board. You can really learn a lot about other people. It's a fantastic networking opportunity. And it's also an experience for you to really shape an organization in a way that you maybe wouldn't in some other part of your career. And I think those, the things you learn in that environment can then really translate over to, uh, to whatever else you're doing. Yeah, and of course, doing those things, you know, digging your well before you're thirsty, as they say, yep. uh, is going to set you up for more success later in your career. Because I like what you said about you're teaching students and preparing them for jobs that may not even exist yet, oh. which is something a lot of people don't think about. But you know, the rate of change, it's so fast. And that 10 years from now, most of the jobs now won't exist. And, and the jobs that will exist 10 years from now don't exist now. So you, how do you prepare for that? And one great way to be ready is always be learning, always be networking, talking to other people, finding out what's going on, what's the latest trends, what are they working on, yep. you know, looking for some of those opportunities so that when the time comes for your job and it's suddenly kind of disappearing, you maybe have some other options, some other opportunities to consider. Right, right. Yeah, and if you wait until you, until you really need that network, <laughs> then you've probably waited too long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting companies with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. We're also providing tons of great content on a weekly basis. In fact, we recently launched a great webinar series that has been going on weekly with content such as creating a culture of multipliers, gender equity, Liz Weissman's webinar on helping rid the world of bad bosses. We have a new webinar from Brent Snow on decision-making. We have a webinar on multipliers and how to use multipliers during troubled times, calming the storm. We have a webinar from our partner, Julie Winkle Giulioni on developing in place how to continue your growth during remote working. And a webinar from Paul Middleton on the secret sauce for learning in the flow of work plus many more, just head to our website at advantageperformance.com. Click on free resources and you'll find the link to webinars and all of our other insights and resources there. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. So along the way, you're, you're building your career. We talked about this idea of a career satisfaction. And I'm sure everybody wants to be satisfied with their career. Most of the listeners to this podcast are in talent development, learning and development. They want their people to be engaged and be happy and satisfied with their careers, knowing that not everybody's going to be completely in love with what they're doing. But I think more and more what we're seeing, especially for early career hires, is higher turnover now because people are just... They're not satisfied. And instead of trying to figure that out, they just go look for another job and leave. Do you work anywhere in that space? How do you, you know, what advice or ideas do you have to help organizations kind of solve this challenge? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. I think at some level, if people are going to leave your organization, then that's just going to happen, right? 
But I do think that organizations can help to alleviate some of that by being an amazing place to work and also helping people see the opportunities for ongoing development in their organization. You know, I I come across a lot of organizations, they don't even have the basics right around orientation and onboarding. Like, it's horrible. You go in there and there's virtually no introduction to what the organization does and so forth or your job. And people are just kind of thrown in there and left to flail around and maybe either sink or swim. And I think that that's, that's a huge opportunity for most organizations to do things a lot better. You know, there's been some, some stuff... I was just reading something the other day in a talent development related type of publication, something about you know the, the next wave of, of onboarding is self-onboarding. And, and part of me kind of got cynical and started laughing at that. It's like, no, the organizations should be helping with this as well. Now, if, the point is well taken that you know, there are probably some self-service tools that people could use and technology-enabled things to help people orient themselves. But I think that that's a huge area that organizations can, can use to their benefit in order to retain people, make them feel like they're welcomed, orient them to the culture. And orientation and onboarding, like this shouldn't be just like the, the first three days of your job. Yeah. If you did a good job hiring, and let's assume that you know you put the effort into developing a good system for that, you've minimized your probabilities of getting someone bad, you've maximized your probabilities of getting someone good through that whole process. That probably took some pain and effort and time and money to do that. So you owe it to the organization to keep that person around, right? Yeah, create a great experience so they want to stay. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, the orientation onboarding piece is great, but also provide some of those those opportunities for learning and development along the way. Uh, and obviously, there are huge benefits to this for the organization in the long term, because then you're going to have the, the skills and knowledge that you need when the unexpected opportunities or challenges arise for the organization, if you have people who are ready for those because of their, their training. And then I think there's the other piece is just around good leadership and management. So this seems like kind of a an old school way to look at it just, you know, because I think a lot of times organizations are looking for maybe uh, a new app to fix this. But, you know, in terms of developing high quality relationships between supervisors and their employees, like that's really important. You know, if we look at, for example, how performance actually improves in organizations, the formal performance review does very little, actually. The formal performance review is good for documentation purposes, maybe you know, some administrative purposes. Um, but what really matters are those ongoing conversations about performance in a productive, constructive way between supervisors and the people who work for them. And to the extent that talent development leaders can create a culture and you know, provide the resources to all managers in the organization to be those trusted you know, guides and mentors to the people who are working for them, I think that's going to help with career satisfaction at those lower levels as well. Totally. I think all those things play in and what you were talking about with onboarding too, so important, creating a great employee experience from beginning to end. From the first time mm-hmm. they find out about you, touch you, go through that recruiting process, they get hired, they go through the onboarding, which I think the company should be involved in. You mentioned this self-onboarding. It sounds very lonely to me. <laughs> I'm used to doing a lot of things myself you know, yeah. with technology, but... That does sound like a lonely experience coming into a company. So I think all those things are important. Ben, are there any uh, trends that you're following closely or interested in in the talent development world that we haven't covered so far? I mean, I think one trend that I'm seeing is obviously the increased use of technology to drive uh, a lot of this stuff around learning and development in organizations. And I think the, the challenge 
for all of us in this space is to use technology as a good tool, but also remembering and keeping a very human element to all of this. And you know, I think this is going to require people who have you know a, a human-centered approach towards organizations to be involved with the design and the implementation of those technologies. When you have a have people who are only technologists developing them, sometimes you lose that. And so I think that's a, a huge trend that is going to be continuing to emerge over time. And I also I come across this this mentality or Maybe it's a trend or maybe it's just my observation. Maybe I'm wrong. I kind of hope I am actually. But it seems like a lot of organizations are looking for ways to you know, help their leaders and managers develop through a quick thing here and a quick thing there and so forth. And I, I get the idea. It sounds good. People are, everyone's busy. But what's really needed in many organizations, and this is maybe me just talking from the ivory tower, I don't know, but it's, it's me, is that you know, people... Leaders in modern organizations need to take time to think. They need that deep thought. They need to be able to uh, you know, develop a nuanced understanding of what's happening in the, their organization, how they're going to approach different challenges. And this is kind of like character development type stuff too. So I think that organizations would be well advised sometimes to take a step back from kind of the the frenetic demands that maybe their managers are telling the talent development folks like, hey, we don't have time for this. We just need this and this. It's like, well, maybe you actually do need some time for reflection, right? For example, you know, most organizations try to have different types of stretch experiences for people to go through in order to learn new things. And that's great. But what we know is that those experiences are best when they're coupled with some guided reflection and learning afterwards, actually kind of during it and afterwards. So sometimes I think there's some great value in actually slowing down some of this stuff related to learning and development and understanding that it takes time and that people do need the space to be able to to think and learn. One really frustrating thing that I saw back in Afghanistan was that I was in charge of a literacy training program because it turned out a bunch of the Afghan national police couldn't read. Mm. But the approach was basically taking this entire curriculum and boiling it down to like, we're going to get this done in eight weeks. We're going to teach people how to read in eight weeks. Not going to happen, right? Because you, know, you think about it, if you have a child, we start teaching them their letters you know, when they're really young. We start teaching them words when they're really young. It takes a long time to learn how to read, right? So point being, I think organizations need to realize that real learning, real understanding take some time to develop and they have to invest in it that way versus looking for a quick fix or a small bite that's going to satisfy some needs here and there. Agree 100%. And speaking of learning, uh, is there a book that has made a big difference for you or that you often recommend? Oh my goodness. So I, I do read a lot and a lot of the books I read are, are ones for, for class. You know, I, I guess the probably some of the more influential books in my life. Well, there's, there's the Bible, which regardless of your, you know, your persuasion and, and faith type of orientation is probably one of the uh, most influential sets of moral philosophy that's ever been written. So I think there's some good stuff there. But in addition to that, there's a cool book that I, I read recently called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And uh, Adam Smith, of course, was the Scottish philosopher and oftentimes considered the father of modern economics. Uh, he wrote The Wealth of Nations. Right. 
So people oftentimes associate Adam Smith with this idea of, you know, greed is good and this kind of Gordon Gecko type approach towards life. But it's actually fairly inaccurate because he also wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. So in this book, it's by a guy named Russ Roberts, who also has a fantastic podcast called Econ Talk. But anyway, so he's an economist. And he wrote this book about Adam Smith. And uh, he talks about how man does, wants not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Like we want and we crave people's admiration and their respect, but we also want to deserve it, right? And how that can really inform our lives. And the, the real two kind of paths towards you know, being loved and lovely, one of them is fame and fortune. And the other one, Adam Smith suggests, is through a life of virtue. And he makes the argument that uh, you know, a life of virtue is far more rewarding and satisfying than the, the fame and fortune route, which I think there's a lot of value to that. And you know, going into thinking about career satisfaction, I think how you define career satisfaction and how you try to move towards being quote unquote satisfied, I think that changes and it should change as you get older, right? So I have, I'll just speak from my own personal experience. I, I want to learn a lot and I want to help people. I think that's much more important now to me than, you know, the other types of measures of career success, for example. Yeah. And so I, I think it's important to, to remember that life is finite. That was one of the things that, uh, one of the biggest lessons that I think I took away actually from, from some of my military service, in particular in being in Afghanistan for, for a while was, you know, this idea that the mortality rate is 100%, right? And um, <laughs> it's actually funny. So there's a, there's a, a cemetery in my backyard and it, it actually, uh, not like in my backyard, but you can see it. Yeah. And it, it reminds me, it's like, hey, what do you want? to be written on your epitaph and what do you mm-hmm. want people to be saying about you once you're gone? I think that's the stuff that really matters. Yeah. And that's the stuff that a true leadership and character can really be built upon. Yeah, it's very true. Mortality rate, 100%. You are going to die. <laughs> what are you going to do with your time here? How do you build your legacy? How do you make a difference? Yeah. What do you want to be said about you when you're gone? I think about that stuff all the time. That's great. And, uh, and so we can, go to, we can go down a whole other rabbit hole there. Uh, <laughs> but I'll end with this last question for people listening who work in talent development, learning and development, what's one more piece of advice you would give them to accelerate their careers? Success. I think you have to keep on learning. We already touched on this earlier and I'm hopelessly biased, but I think the the field of industrial and organizational psychology or you know a combination of HR and uh, learning and development plus some good data analytics skills, I think th- that's some really good stuff that's going to help people in the world of talent development continue to be able to contribute to and shape the future of this field. Love it. Uh, and Ben, for anybody listening who wants to connect with you, get in touch with you, follow along with the stuff you're doing, where's the best place for them to go to do that? Sure. So a couple of places, um, you know, I have my own website, which is benbaron.com. That's B-E-N-B-A-R-A-N.com. Uh, also a lot of stuff about other educational and podcast related stuff at indigotogether.com. I'm also at, on Twitter at Ben Barron. All right. We'll put links to those in the show notes, both websites, Twitter. I know you uh, are producing stuff on uh, LinkedIn as well, where I'm very active sure. and uh, we're connected there. So if you're listening, and you're not connected with us, uh, head on over to LinkedIn and connect. Love to uh, connect with you there, Ben. It's been awesome connecting with you and hearing about your experience and your wisdom and your advice. Thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing and really appreciate it. Have a great day. Hey, thank you so much, Andy. Really great to do this. All right. Take care. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. 
Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible. And we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.